Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. Uh, recently, my husband Dan was sharing with me that there, there's some sort of Facebook page, Facebook group um, for parents of children at the school where our kids attend. And I guess um, someone posted a couple weeks ago, like, you know, if you don't teach your kids about Santa Claus or if you don't do Santa Claus in your house, like, tell your kids to stop ruining it for my kids. Tell your kids, like, don't come to school and say Santa Claus doesn't exist because, you know, it ruins the magic of the season. And um, I was just thinking of that as we approach Christmas, um, you know, whether you quote unquote do Santa in your house or don't do Santa, did Santa growing up or didn't do Santa. I think um, there's so many things in life, maybe everything in life could be a point of reflection or an inroad to under- understanding God and our relationship with God even, even more fully. I was thinking how um, I think Santa in a lot of ways is is um, a way of of creating or maybe pointing to the the magic, the beauty, um, like the twinkliness of the season. And I was thinking, you know, we 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 say that like how how magical, how incredible, how loved are we, or how rewarded are we if we're good throughout the year that this big man flies all over the world to then kind of like squeeze himself into a chimney, come into each of our individual homes to leave us gifts um, over which we, in which we delight, over which we rejoice. And it's just a shadow, a mere shadow. And again, I think a little inroad into understanding what actually is going on this season and what what Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, has actually done for us. I recently gave two women's Advent reflection talks at, at a couple parishes in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and our point of reflection each night was um, to, to contemplate the manger scene, to just step back for a moment and think, okay, Jesus Christ, again, second person of the Trinity, God himself, First of all, did not have to create us. Second of all, did not have to come to earth. Third of all, did not have to suffer and die uh, to save us from our sin and doesn't have to continue to be in relationship with us. Like God is not bound by anyone or anything. He didn't have to do any of this as though it were scripted and he's just, you know, playing out the the various parts. Um, And when he comes to earth, you know, you, you might think, I, I would have students over the years ask, like, why didn't God make it more obvious? And th- the way a lot of my students asked, it was really beautiful and heartfelt. Like, God is God. Doesn't he want people to believe in him? Why didn't he make it more obvious? Um, as though, you know, God needs, like, a better marketing campaign, and then he'll have more followers. Um, but I, I would say to them, I would kind of flip it back to them and say, like, yeah, why did God come? as a tiny little baby in a stinky little manger in a very dark area of the earth after being rejected again and again and again, in after in after in, um, such that he was born, you know, many um, the scriptures will say and our tradition will say he was born into obscurity. Like, why didn't he make it more obvious? Why didn't he float down from heaven on a beautiful cloud? Why didn't he, shabam, you know, enter the world with a bolt of lightning? 
why didn't he, you know, come more obviously as as a king, a monarch, a ruler, a president, um, a pop star, you know, a, an icon of of some sort that's more who's more recognizable. And what I would say to my students is that we call ourselves Christians or Christians. So we look at what Christ did and then we follow that. Or we look at what Christ did and trust, believe that he did it for a reason. So it wasn't haphazard or like, you know what, I think I'll just show up as a cute little baby. Like, no, he planned that for all of eternity. There's no change in God. So it's not like a few millennia into being God, he was like, you know what? I think this is a better idea. No, he planned for all of eternity to step into his creation's human finite timeline as the infinite God. So like this big jolly Santa who squeezes himself down the chimney to enter our individual homes to bring us gifts over which we delight through which we feel love and joy and happiness. The infinite God of the universe squeezes himself into a finite creature. He takes on human flesh, the infinite God, um, to whom, for whom, about whom there is no beginning and no end. And he, he limits himself into our humanity. And he takes on not just, you know, a fully adult capable male human being body but he takes on this this tiny little dependent baby so jesus again the second person of the trinity god himself is born as a tiny little baby dependent on his mom and dad the blessed mother and saint joseph surrounded by hay you know stinky farm animals um greeted first by these lowly people the shepherds and then um, you know, these grand people, the Magi, whose lives are changed. I love reflecting on that line from, I think it's from Luke's gospel, you know, the Magi. Herod sends the Magi to find this king about whom people have been prophesying because Herod's afraid he's going to get supplanted. So go find that king so that Herod can go kill that king. Um, and so the Magi go in search of him. Uh, I think Herod says the line from scripture, Herod says, go and search diligently for the child. And then a couple of verses later, Uh, Scripture says, after the Magi encounter him, they go home a different way. So when we encounter Christ, when we encounter God, when we go and search diligently for the child, this precious, tiny, humble, hidden little thing, little person, being, (laughs) who's actually God himself, um, we are changed. If we truly come humbly to encounter him, to meet him as he desires to meet us, not in this like, you know, come to me on my own terms kind of way. But no, he, he invites us to him um, through prayer, through the sacraments, through the circumstances of our lives so that we, we benefit from it. Okay, so God, God doesn't need us. He, again, doesn't invite us, you know, to come on his terms because like he needs something or he's like a harumphy, I don't know, person who's like, meh. I will only greet you this way. No, he, he invites us in certain ways through certain circumstances because he knows what we need. He knows what's good for us, what will challenge us, purify us, strengthen us, fill us so that we can go home a different way. We can be transformed. And I think this, this point of reflection just never gets old. I think we can, we can think about it. We can meditate on it. We can pray with it, contemplate it. 
from now until eternity because when we're God willing in heaven looking at that second and first and third person of the Trinity face to face in the beatific vision we will still want to unpack that infinity understand that infinity love and be loved by that infinity for eternity it will never get old and it doesn't get old now and it will never get old thanks be to God so this is a long way of saying a long introduction to say uh you know as again whether we do Santa don't do Santa in our homes um may we let it be an opportunity to think of really the real reason why we're celebrating each year this Christmas season every Christmas season um you know, it's not just a, a big man who might squeeze himself down into our little home, but it's a big God who squeezed himself down into our, our finite human nature to come into every individual home throughout time and space for all of eternity out of love for us to bring us joy and peace um, and fulfillment, happiness, all the things for which he created us because he loves us. He does not have to create us. He didn't have to create us, um, but he does because he's good. So God loves us not because we're good, but because he's good and because that goodness wanted to share itself um, with billions, billions and billions of people for millennia. So thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much. Happy almost birthday. Uh, may you be born anew into our hearts, into our lives, into our marriages and families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, um, into this world in a new way, uh, this Advent, this as we prepare, and uh, this Christmas season, so that all may come to know you, you who are the, the way, the truth, and the life who comes to bring us that, that goodness, that love, that light. Um, I would say of which you were made, but God, you are not made. So the, the goodness, the light, the love that, that is God himself, that is you. Dear Lord, amen. Whew, man, who would have thought that little reflection would literally bring me to tears? I think I'm a little stressed and teary this time of year anyway. <laughs> so please forgive my, uh, my little trembling voice here. All right, on today's episode, on the second half, we're going to read paragraphs 27 through 25, excuse me, 27, 25 through 27, 58. And the title of this article, we'll read articles two and three. Three, let's see what's three, has to do with the Lord's Prayer. So we're coming up on the very last section of the Catechism, the Lord's Prayer. Article three, the prayer of the hour of Jesus. Um, but the, the, the bulk of today's reading selection is Article 2, entitled The Battle of Prayer. And there was a phase of life where one of my brothers, when um, he would experience these mic drop, mic drop moments, listening to something, watching something, you know, someone would tell him a story. He, instead of, you know, maybe it was like pre-mic drop when people would say that or make that, make that movement, um, he would just go, boom, baby. Like, there it is. And so I wrote next to this article, boom, baby. It's just so good. There's just so many nuggets here, so many pearls of wisdom. And uh, so what we'll do is we'll work our way through some of these paragraphs highlighting uh, the battle of prayer. So things in the world, things that come from the devil, i.e. temptation, and then things that come from our very selves 
that make prayer a battle, that make it difficult to pray. And the catechism highlights over and over again how important, how life-giving, how necessary, how vital prayer is. Um, We are human beings made of body and souls, and just as our bodies need food and drink to nourish and strengthen and sustain us, our souls need prayer, need relationship with God. There's this really interesting line in paragraph 2742. It talks about pray constantly, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. So a passage that comes from 1 Thessalonians. Partway through the paragraph, the catechism tells us, for we have not been commanded to work to keep watch and to fast constantly, but it has been laid down that we are to pray without ceasing. That quote comes from Avagrius Ponticus, who is referenced a couple times in this reading selection, and I didn't know who he was, so I looked him up. He, Avagrius Ponticus, also known as Avagrius the Solitary, lived from 345 to 399 in modern-day Turkey. He was a Christian monk and ascetic, and basically um, he, he was this influential theologian, apparently like a very a great orator, a great speaker, a great writer, um, who, who wrote, preached, lived well, and um, was followed by, by some significant people, other saints. Let's see, who was it? So he was a disciple of several influential contemporary church leaders. So he followed saints such as Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Macarius of Egypt. He was a teacher of others, including John Cashin and Palladius of Galatia. So we get a couple quotes from Evagrius Ponticus, including, for we have not been commanded to work constantly, to keep watch constantly, and to fast constantly. But it has been laid down that we are to pray without ceasing. So given all the things we could do in our lives, given all the options, the ways in which we can spend our time, our money, our energy, Uh, Scripture tells us again and again and again. God tells us through Scripture, through tradition, pray unceasingly. So that old knock, seek, ask, or knock, ask, seek. Um, Knock and it shall be opened to you. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given to you. I'm I'm mixing up the order, but basically persevere, persevere, persevere um, in your prayer life. I think I've mentioned that my mom and dad for years would bring pilgrimages to Medjugorje. So when I was nine, um, friends of theirs invited them to go on pilgrimage to Medjugorje. My parents, who were practicing Catholics, just experienced this beautiful deepening of their faith, a deeper conversion. And then, um, God bless, God bless my mom. She was like, you know what, I, th- I think I could actually do this a little bit better. And so she she started organizing trips and and really, uh, by the end of her life, she was just like rocking and rolling. She had a great system. Um, so anyway, over the years, my parents brought many, many people to Medjugorje, a modern-day Marian apparition site, if you're not familiar with Medjugorje. And um, one of the things that kind of emerged over time was uh, excuses people would give for not going. So if like a family member was like, hey, you should go on this this Medjugorje pilgrimage with Gina and Barry Pine, or if my mom and dad, you know, invited someone through church or wherever, um, people would would give different excuses over the years. And, and many were very legitimate. They were caring for, you know, a sick family member. They couldn't get off time from work, et cetera. And so my parents would encourage them, you know what, if you, if you feel called, persevere, 
because God God will make it known over time. If he's really called you, those excuses or those worries or those things to which you need to attend will be taken care of or will fall away. Um, but if not, maybe God perhaps is not inviting you at this time, and so those, those roadblocks will remain. And so after years and years of my parents running pilgrimages, they would kind of, as part of their preparation for the trip, they would tell people, you know what, as we get closer and closer to departing for a pilgrimage, just know that the devil's going to get in there and um, try to dissuade you because this trip is awesome. It's an opportunity for deepening conversion, maybe for intercessory prayer for family and friends back home. And so the devil's going to get in there and he's going to try to discourage you. He's going to throw things at you. Um, so don't be deterred and just continue to pray and, and seek God. Is Are you inviting me to this? Is this, you know, for me? And th- there was this one year, and so my parents would suffer as a result as well because I think they were doing this great work. Um, you know, so they... I think it was the first trip my mom, my mom and dad organized. My mom got pneumonia, like a really bad version of pneumonia to the point where she was hospitalized. And, um, you know, the doctor came in. It was like a few days before they were supposed to depart. The doctor came into the hospital room and said, you know, I'm sorry, Mrs. Pine, but you're going to have to cancel your trip. <laughs> my mom, God bless her, and her, with her cheerful disposition said, oh, don't worry, doctor. This will resolve in the next day or two. I'm going on that trip. He was like, okay, crazy lady. Well, sure enough, it did, and she was able to go. But she, she looked back on that as a a discouragement, a temptation of the devil to stay at home, forget the trip, and um, you know, don't don't lead the people uh, who have been called on this trip. And so, so interesting to the point where you know, like seven, ten, fifteen years in, my parents would just kind of throw up their hands and laugh, like, "Is that the best you've got, Satan?" Because like we've been over this, we're going. God has called us and these other people to it, and so you know, get behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus. So there was this one year. It must have been a particularly good and fruitful trip. I kid you not, leading two weeks leading up to the departure of their pilgrimage, just about every major appliance in the house broke. So dishwasher, grill, washer, dryer. One of my parents got in a car accident, was fine, thank God, but the car got pretty damaged. Um, what else? Washer, dryer, dishwasher. It, it was once like the fifth, seventh appliance broke or got damaged, They again, they were just like, is that what you've got? <laughs> So on the one hand, people uh, experience this, these, um, I I would say, like curveballs from the devil to knock them off their game, to keep them from going on a pilgrimage, which would lead to their deepening conversion and perhaps, you know, powerful intercessory prayer for their family and friends who could not attend the pilgrimage. Then there were others who um, perhaps did not really want to go, maybe felt called, perhaps were called, but didn't want to go because it's expensive. It's, it's a, arduous journey. You have to take a couple planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. Um, Ten days in Bosnia and Herzegovina um, to see, you know, a supposed Marian apparition is not really like, you know, just like your typical conversation around the water cooler at, at work. So perhaps it's like a little difficult to explain to colleagues or family and friends who either aren't Catholic or are Catholic, but not, um, what did someone call me the other day? Oh, you're like really Catholic. Okay. So family members who are Catholic, but not like really Catholic. Um, so, so perhaps people were called, 
but didn't want to go. And so they would provide excuses. And one year, someone, my, my dad invited someone to go. And um, the gentleman said, you know what? <clears throat> it was months away. He said, you know what? That time of year, my dog is typically sick. And um, my dog will need me to take him to the vet. So I won't be able to go. My dad was like, OK. <laughs> well, do you do what you have to do? I, I think maybe somebody else could take your dog to the vet. Maybe your dog won't get sick. Um, but, you know, that's between you and the Lord. So I bring this up to say that um, we're, we're, we're going to talk about prayer here, that prayer is so important, vital, necessary to our human lives, um, that the devil who hates us, who is eternally miserable and misery loves company, he does not want us to be in union with God nor go to heaven and be in union with him for eternity. Um, he, he throws curveballs at us. And, you know, some are light lobs and some are like outright you get pegged with the baseball. Um, the world, which as scripture tells us again and again, is opposed to the gospel. And so the world, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, rails against prayer as well. I had someone tell me kind of offhandedly, casually, a couple years ago, like, yeah, prayer and Christianity, I just, I find it to be irrelevant. It's like, oh my gosh, do you? Wow, okay. Well, it's relevant, and I will try to charitably pray for you, because God willing, we're headed for the same place, which is relevant to all of us. And then the flesh. So scripture talks about the three enemies of the gospel, the three enemies of the soul, uh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. So the flesh is kind of that all-encompassing term for our concupiscent nature. So the our, our fallen human nature tends or is inclined to sin rather than virtue. Pre-original sin, pre-fall, we were not inclined to sin, but um, after committing original sin, Adam and Eve hand on a wounded humanity. So thanks be to God, baptism washes away our original sin, but there's still like a little, a little weakness there, a little wound, a little scar in our humanity. And that scar, that wound tends us, inclines us towards sin. So again, much easier to stay in bed than hop out of bed early and seize the day. Much easier to tell a little white lie and not have to like face someone or something than to take a breath, boldly proclaim the truth, and deal with the consequences. And so the catechism opens today with, with these three enemies of the soul, these three things, entities opposed to the gospel. The catechism begins this section entitled The Battle of Prayer by first saying that, that prayer is a gift of grace. So every prayer begins with God. God gives us the grace to come to him in prayer. But then the catechism also highlights that because we are human beings with free wills, intellects and free wills, uh, it requires a determined response on our part. So paragraph 2725 says, prayer is both a gift of grace and a determined response on our part. It always presupposes effort. So we cannot lie back and just prayer happens. Um, at a bare minimum, we allow it to happen. We allow that grace to enter into our lives. And then at a, I don't know, greater maximum, we need to participate in it. We need to engage it and allow it to begin its transformation. So the great figures of prayer of the old covenant before Christ, as well as the mother of God, the saints, and he himself all teach us this. Prayer is a battle. Against whom? The catechism asks. Against ourselves 
and against the wiles of the tempter who does all he can to turn man away from prayer, away from union with God. We pray as we live because we live as we pray. If we do not want to act habitually according to the Spirit of Christ, neither can we pray habitually in his name. The spiritual battle of the Christian's new life is inseparable from the battle of prayer. So if we do not want to act habitually according to the Spirit of Christ, neither can we pray habitually in his name. That line again speaks to the two dimensions of our humanity. So as human beings, we are body and soul. One is not more important than the other. We can't compartmentalize our humanity and, you know, just focus on our body because the soul needs attending to. We can't just focus on our soul because the body needs attending to. So again, if we do not want to act habitually according to the spirit of Christ, so if our bodies are not engaged in living lives according to the spirit of Christ, neither can we pray habitually in his name. Then our souls won't be working with the spirit of Christ or acting according to the spirit of Christ. We pray as we live because we live as we pray. This makes me think of... Uh, that quote from, I actually had to look, I've heard the quote before, but I didn't know who this gentleman is, John Wimber. So he was a Christian pastor, author who lived um, uh, towards the end, of, well, 1934 through 1997. So almost mid or got really active towards the end of the, the 20th century. And he said, show me where you spend your time, your money and your energy, and I'll tell you what you worship. Show me where you spend your time, money, and energy, and I'll tell you what you worship. We can't be living according to one spirit, whether that's the spirit of the world, uh, the spirit of the devil. I don't know that many people actively choose to follow that spirit, or the spirit of our fleshliness. In other words, doing living lives that are very comfortable or the our primary concern is avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure, and then expect um, to have fruitful prayer lives or prayer lives in keeping with the spirit of Christ. We are composite beings, human beings made of body and soul. We live as we pray. We pray as we live. And so if our, our prayer lives feel unfruitful, they feel dry, or maybe it's very hard for, it's difficult for us to, to actually sit down and pray, then we might want to take a look at our physical lives or how we're living the rest of the other dimensions of our lives and see where we can perhaps discipline something in our lives and ourselves, perhaps learn more, give more so that we are more, I don't know if you want to say educated in prayer or generous in prayer. Uh, What we do in our day-to-day lives affects our prayer life. The way that we pray in our prayer lives affects our daily living. There's so many reasons, maybe especially in our very busy world, um, or very distracted and distractible world, so many reasons not to pray. Here's where we hear St. Francis say, well, then all the more reason to pray and all the reason to pray more. So someone must have said to him at some point, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too busy to pray. He said, every day we should pray. He says, every one of us needs a half an hour of prayer, except when we are busy then we need an hour. And I heard another one of the saints said, we should each pray one hour a day. And if we're very busy, we we should pray two hours a day. (laughs) I think that's just so good. Because when we pray, um, we sync up all of our humanity. So not just our our daily physical, mental lives, but our spiritual dimension, our souls. We, We sync up with the Lord, the Lord of life and love. 
Um, and then that has ramifications, again, back in our daily lives, the physical world. The Catechism then goes on to detail some of the objections to prayer. 2726 says, In the battle of prayer, we must face in ourselves and around us erroneous notions of prayer. Some people view prayer as a simple psychological activity, others as an effort of concentration to reach a mental void. Still others reduce prayer to ritual words and postures. Many Christians unconsciously regard prayer as an occupation that is incompatible with all the other things they have to do. They quote-unquote don't have the time. Those who seek God by prayer are quickly discouraged because they do not know that prayer comes also from the Holy Spirit and not from themselves alone. So uh, they quote unquote, so many Christians unconsciously regard prayer as an occupation that is incompatible with all the other things they have to do. They don't have the time. We often, and I, I think I just mentioned this in the last episode or two episodes ago, I have this mug that says, but first pray. Because if we don't put that first, and I think oftentimes if we don't literally put that as the very first thing of our day, then the day just, it's so easy for the day to go by. So many things rush in that that genuinely need to be attended to. So kids who need to be fed, fed bills that need to be paid. Um, and so that that prayer, because it's a, a spiritual thing, it's very easy to push it to the margins and then for it to be pushed out of our lives completely. And so we see it in we see it as being incompatible. Again, I don't know if it's just our age. I'm, I'm guessing this has happened in other ages. Um, we view prayer as something that's unproductive. It's inefficient. I don't see the results, and um, I don't necessarily see how it's affecting my day-to-day living. And so why is it important? Why should I devote um, my very valuable time on something that seems fruitless. 2727 goes on to say, we must also face the fact that certain attitudes deriving from the mentality of this present world can penetrate our lives if we are not vigilant. For example, some would have it that only that is true, which can be verified by reason and science. So only if I can quantify, I can explain, I can point to like what's going on and what it's yielding, then is it valuable, important necessary for my day-to-day living. Yet prayer is a mystery that overflows both our conscious and unconscious lives. Others, so another objection to prayer, others overly prize production and profit, thus prayer being unproductive is useless. Still others, another objection, exalt sensuality and comfort as the criteria of the true, the good, and the beautiful. So uh, another dimension of our society, we're very focused on feelings, like how does that make you feel? We go to the church that makes us feel the best, or where the music is the most delightful, um, or where Father's homily makes me feel good about myself and doesn't actually challenge me. So if we if we view prayer that way, as we all know from firsthand experience, it doesn't always feel good. Okay, sometimes it's like, hello, Jesus, are you there? Or like, oh, this is boring, or, you know, we're falling asleep in the midst of prayer. It, it often, I would say it doesn't always, and even often, feels um, not great, or there are good feelings associated with, with our prayer lives. Whereas prayer, the love of beauty, is caught up in the glory of the living and true God. Finally, so final objection, some see prayer as a flight from the world in reaction against activism. But in fact, Christian prayer is neither an escape from reality nor a divorce from life. So um, some of us might view prayer as like disengaging from the world or like checking out mentally when, um, 
you know, we might think like, no, 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 I need to be present, you know, stay focused. I don't have time to, to disengage and maybe like float into la-la land, whereas the catechism says that is not at all what prayer is. 2728 goes on to say, finally, our battle has to confront what we experience as failure in prayer, discouragement during periods of dryness, sadness that because we have great possessions, we have not given all to the Lord, disappointment over not being heard according to our own will, wounded pride, stiffened by the indignity that is ours as sinners, our resistance to the idea that prayer is a free and unmerited gift, and so forth. The conclusion is always the same. What good does it do to pray? To overcome these obstacles, we must battle to gain humility, trust, and perseverance. So I, just, I, I think of my own self. How many times have I been disappointed in prayer? I was praying for something. Maybe I was praying for like to receive something. I was praying that somebody else would do something. Maybe I was even praying like, God, root this this defect out of me, this, you know, this sin, this tendency. And it just feels like, you know, I'm praying and praying and praying for that. And you're not doing it. You're not giving it to me, granting me that, purifying me of this. Like, what the heck? Isn't this a good thing that I'm asking for? Don't you want me to be more purified and one less defect in me? And so the catechism reminds us we have to confront these things. So disappointment over our wills not being made manifest or like what we want to happen. Dryness in prayer. So a lack of feeling or a lack of feeling that God is present. Um, sadness because we have great possessions, wounded pride, resistance to the idea that prayer is a free and unmerited gift. So maybe we have good um, consolation-filled prayer lives, but we don't like to think of those prayer lives as coming as a gift, an unmerited gift from God. Like my prayer life is good because I've worked at it and, you know, I take the time while God has given me the grace to work at it and to give him the time. And so in the end, or let's say start to finish, it's it's an unmerited grace. But also, and again, I love I love this both and dimension of our, our Catholic faith. Um, as that first line from our reading selection said today, we need to engage it. We need to participate. So in conclusion, the catechism says to overcome these obstacles, we must battle to gain humility, trust, and perseverance. So humility recognizing that God is God and I am not. Maybe he has more to impart than I do. God, don't you think you should do it this way? Or God, didn't you hear me ask for? Um, But in humble recognition, we recognize, in humble recognition, we recognize, we see that, that God is God. We are creature, that he loves us and maybe has a better plan than we might even have for ourselves or for those whom we love. So humility, trust, Um, Even though we can't see how we're going to get from point A to point B, uh, trusting, believing, hoping that God will get us there, and that maybe the point B on which we have our eye is not where we're going to land. We're going to be further down the road or up a greater height. And then lastly, perseverance. So in the midst of dryness, this lack of feeling, boredom, uh, a lack of like scientific data support that my prayers are working. Uh, We persevere, persevere, persevere. The Catechism then talks about how to face these difficulties in prayer. So 2729 says the habitual difficulty in prayer is distraction. Uh, There's a couple lines, and then it says, to set about hunting down distractions would be to fall into their trap. So if we stop praying and, you know, we – 
we observe the distraction and try to put it away and then, oh shoot, there's another distraction and we put it at the feet of Jesus and, ah, there's another distraction. Well, if I can just think through that or take care of that, then I can come back to prayer. The catechism says, no, 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 don't worry about the distractions. Just let them go because the more you hunt them down, the more distracted you will be and the less you're engaging in prayer. So to set about hunting down distractions would be to fall into their trap when all that is necessary is to turn back to our heart. For a distraction reveals to us what we are attached to. And this humble awareness before the Lord should awaken our preferential love for him and lead us resolutely to offer him our heart to be purified. Therein lies the battle, the choice of which master to serve. So for a distraction... Uh, for a distraction reveals to us what we are attached to. I was chatting about this with Dan. I went to uh, do a little reading and, and prep for the episode, and I came back. I was like, oh, my gosh, babe, this section of the catechism is just, like, on fire. It's so good. So good in a way that, like, it calls us to the carpet, which is a little terrifying. Like, ooh, I got to work on stuff. I'm not perfect. Are you sure, Lord? I'm not perfect yet. Um, and so I was telling him about this line, you know, pay attention. Pay attention to your distractions in that they show you what you're attached to. Like what are, what are we still holding on to? What are we still clinging to a little bit that prevents us from more fully engaging in our prayer life and ultimately in our relationship with Jesus? And so Dan said, he said, like, okay, what, what do you think your distractions are? I was like, oh, without, without a doubt, home decor. He was like, what? I was like, yeah, like, I'll be praying. And then I'm thinking, like, okay, Benjamin Moore Edgecombe Gray paint would look really good, but it might be a little too light for the kitchen. And so, and then if we put that gold frame there, and Dan was like, oh, well, maybe he's so generous to me. Like, whenever I, I bring a fault of myself before him, he, like, downplays it. He's like, no, it's probably because, like, you're sitting in our home and so, like, your eye goes around, you start thinking of home decor. I was like, no, no, no. I was in the car in the Starbucks parking lot thinking of our living room and our kitchen back home. He was like, okay, well. (laughs) So if we we don't give time to our distractions in prayer, we – what did the catechism say? We – turn back all that is necessary is to turn back to our hearts so come back into our hearts where we're in conversation with God um but maybe after that prayer time just do a quick recounting okay what by what was I distracted what other things kind of crept into my prayer time and then those things could be as the catechism says what I'm a little attached to or maybe overly attached to and need to lay at the feet of Jesus or need to invite him into those areas of my life to be purified, not necessarily, if they're sins, they need to be gotten rid of, renounced, purified. Um, but if it's stuff like thinking about home decor is not sinful, um, but it is distracting from my prayer life. And so to be attached, as we talked about in a couple episodes when we talked about that passage, you know, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Jesus is not saying like, if you, if you have worldly wealth, if you have attachments, sorry, buddy, you're not getting into heaven. No, he says, just like the camel, in order to enter the eye of the needle or that gate in the city wall, just like the camel needs to bend down, unload its burdens, and then humbly kind of like crouch down, walk through the gate, and then enter in, stand up. Um, we need to let go of these things in the sense of being detached from them in in the sense that we we are able to recognize that God is more important than them that while we have them we enjoy them we praise God for that and if we don't have them then we can still enjoy life and praise God for that recognizing that if we have God we have all that we need and so as it's revealed to us 
what we're attached to as we consider our distractions and recognize like, ooh, I focus my time, my money, my energy on that and that and that. Um, the catechism says, and this humble awareness before the Lord should awaken our preferential love for him and lead us resolutely to offer him our heart to be purified. Therein lies the battle, the choice of which master to serve. So this harkens back to that Father Larry Richards quote. God says to us, I will give you what you love the most forever. So eternity will be giving us what we love the most forever because God loves us. He recognizes our free will, honors our free will, and allows us to choose. He says, whatever you choose, whatever is number one for you, you will get that forever. But if we choose anything other than God, because anything other than God is finite and cannot sustain the infinite desire in our hearts, then we have chosen hell. I referenced a couple of episodes ago this video by Father Ripperger, which Dan and I finally looked up how to pronounce his name. Whenever I would chat with Dan, like, oh yeah, and it's that, you know, like that thing, Father Ripperger, Father Ripperger. And after saying that a few times, Dan goes, just commit, just pick one or the other, Ripperger or Ripperger. So we looked up online and it's Ripperger. Um, he has this, this really poignant moment in his hour-long talk. So this was a video called, this is a video called Winning at Prayer and Holiness. He is an exorcist, I don't know in what area of the country, but um, he was describing this one exorcism where uh, a person was possessed, and um, as he was performing the exorcism, he I guess as part of the exorcism, you have the, the demon name, its name, and... Um, he said that that all demons who were once angels, so scripture tells us a third of the angels created by God chose against him. Those are the demons. And every angel is given, the, the, the angel's nature is, let's say, its job. So um, an angel is created to carry out a certain task. And so when the demons... When the angels turn from God and become demons, their task is inverted. So what they were created to do, now as demons out of hell, they do the opposite. And so he was performing, Father Ripperger was performing this exorcism, and in the midst of it, he said, what is your nature? You know, what, basically, what were you created to do, and now what, what are you now doing? How are you doing that in the opposite way? And the demon said, in the midst of the exorcism, he said, it is my job to convince people that they cannot be separated from a particular good. To, to convince people, convince us, that, oh, we just can't give that up because then I won't be happy. God, I give you all of my life except that one little thing. And it might be something as basic as hot coffee every morning. I just can't get throughout the day without, without coffee. <laughs> but first, coffee. Um, then I can be a charitable, humble, patient mom, wife, neighbor, teacher, doctor, friend. It might be something as profound as I cannot imagine giving up my children. I, I can't, I, God, I love you, but oh, I cannot imagine, you know, giving, giving up my children, which Lord man, never come to this, but I, I, forgive me if I've already mentioned this anecdote. I had a, a crisis of faith moment when after giving birth to one of my children, I just looked down at this precious, precious little face and thought I, maybe I was in the throes of postpartum depression and so my, my thoughts were all over the place. But I thought, God forbid, if, if it came down to it and I had to renounce Jesus um, so as to save this child or keep this child close to me, I 
would renounce Jesus. I don't think I could do it. And Lord, may may it never come to that. And if it does, may you give me the grace to choose you above all. But looking again at this precious little face, I cannot imagine, cannot imagine choosing someone or something other than this, this precious little baby. And so I've unpacked that with, with Jesus over the years because, again, I thank God was not placed in that situation. May I never be placed in that situation. But um, it, it was a moment to evaluate, like, God, do I really put you first? Like, first, first. Not just in a way that, that pays lip service to God and my relationship with God. Like, yeah, we go to church on every Sunday and I go to confession and I pray daily and I instruct my children in the faith and I love my husband and you know, I'm kind to my neighbors. Um, no, like, God forbid, if I had that Abraham and Isaac moment, would I choose God? So, dear Lord, may I never be in that position. And if I am, give me the grace to, to choose you. Because as we've talked about before, when we place God at the top, we get everything underneath or we get everything that comes along with him. But if we put someone or something else at the top, well, then we don't get the infinite uh, and all that is above that finite thing or person. The Catechism goes on to say, in positive terms, the battle against the possessive and dominating self requires vigilance, sobriety of heart. When Jesus insists on vigilance, he always relates it to himself, to his coming on the last day and every day today. And so our choice in our, with our human free wills uh, does not just come at the end of our lives, but we choose now, 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 today, 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 for or against God. So Jesus says this a number of times throughout the scriptures. Are you with me or are you against me? Or he says, come follow me. And then we offer excuse after excuse. Oh, I'll follow you, but first I have to bury my father. So it turns out the man did not have a father who had just passed away, and he literally has to bury his father's body. But he was saying, like, my father is aged. I don't know how much longer he has, but I need to be with him until he dies, like to be with him through during his old age, throughout his old age. And then after he dies and I bury him, then I'll follow you. Um, and Jesus says, no, now, now, okay? Are you, are you with me or are you against me? Not because Jesus wants to separate us from loved ones or make us choose, you know, between us and, and those whom we love, but because, again, it's, it's always for us, okay? God, God's not some egotistical, egotistical maniac who's like, mwahaha, prove your love to me. But he's helping us, giving us the opportunity to see it for ourselves. Okay, what, what's most important? Is it God or is it someone or something else? The Catechism then goes on to talk about another difficulty in 2731. Another difficulty, especially for those who sincerely want to pray, is dryness. Dryness belongs to contemplative prayer when the heart is separated from God, with no taste for thoughts, memories, and feelings, even spiritual ones. This is the moment of sheer faith, clinging faithfully to Jesus in his agony and in his tomb. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If dryness is due to the lack of roots, because the word has fallen on rocky soil, the battle requires conversion. So we might experience dryness because by the grace of God, we are advancing in our prayer life. God takes away those spiritual consolations to purify our 
our prayer life, our relationship with him, such that we're praying not just because it feels good, but because we truly love God. So that's a time of purification and a deepening in our prayer life and our walk with Christ. But here the catechism says sometimes that dryness is due to lack of roots. So maybe we experience the initial conversion, we were praying, maybe we continue to pray, but we need to allow the the word to go more deeply into the soul, um, into our souls and into our, excuse me, the soil is what I meant to say, of our hearts and our lives. And so um, we experience dryness because like we, we initially got on track, we are there, but God's calling us to more, to go deeper, to go further, and we're stuck. We're, we don't want to advance, whether consciously or unconsciously, and we need, as the catechism says, that the battle requires conversion. Um, so allowing God to transform us further, allow the roots to go deeper, and then perhaps we won't experience that dryness for a bit. The Catechism then talks about some temptations in prayer. 2732 says, The most common yet most hidden temptation is our lack of faith. It expresses itself less by, less by declared incredulity than by our actual preferences. So the most common yet most hidden temptation is our lack of faith. The Catechism here is saying that basically our, our lack of faith is not so much like the so declared incredulity like saying like oh like you know what I don't think I really believe or like you know can God really do x y and z or do you believe God's really in control of this and that um so our lack of faith is manifested or declared less in that way and more in our actual preferences so again how do we spend our time our money and our energy because those are indications of what or who we worship Catechism goes on to say, when we begin to pray, a thousand labors or cares thought to be urgent vie for priority. Once again, it is the moment of truth for the heart. What is its real love? Sometimes we turn to the Lord as a last resort, but do we really believe he is? Sometimes we enlist the Lord as an ally, but our heart remains presumptuous. And I find myself doing that. I'm praying for a certain thing or person or situation and I think it's noble and good, um, but if it's not answered, if God doesn't answer or resolve that situation in the way I think it should be resolved, then I, I realize, or what's uncovered in me, is that, how did the catechism say it? Sometimes we turn to, the, no. Sometimes we enlist the Lord as an ally, but our heart remains presumptuous. In other words, this is my project, and God, you can get on board with me. Like, let's go. You want to join this team because like this is what I think we should do or that person should do or this is how I think this situation should be treated. And so it's like we we allow God to kind of like buddy up, team up with us. Um, but then if if our prayer is not answered in the way we see fit, then the the mask falls off or the facade is taken down and, and I realize like, oh, <laughs> I was pretty presumptuous. Like I thought I was doing it here and just enlisting God as an ally or like having him, you know, support me in my my project God's like hello my project I love that person or I'm more concerned about that situation than you are and here's what's really at play and here's really the best way to to answer or resolve that situation in each case our lack of faith reveals that we do not yet share in the disposition of a humble heart apart from me you can do nothing 27 uh, 33 goes on to say another temptation to which presumption opens the gate is acedia or sloth the spiritual writers understand by this a form of depression due to lax ascetical practice, decreasing vigilance, carelessness of heart. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Painful as discouragement is, it is the reverse of presumption. The humble are not surprised by their distress. It leads them to trust more, to hold fast in constancy. I started going to confession more recently, and the more I go, it's one of those things, like the more I go, the more I realize I need to go, because in as I'm confessing, like, actual practical things i'm i'm realizing or god's showing me the judgmental hypocritical resentful disposition behind what i'm doing and thinking and so um it's easy to get like disappointed or to throw my hands up and be like oh i can't do this i'm not making any progress um but here the catechism says like we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be discouraged so painful as discouragement is, it is the reverse of presumption. It's a, a recognition. So if, if we're, our prayers are not being answered as we think they should be answered or we're not progressing in the spiritual life as we think we should progress, we find um, more defects in ourselves. We find that we fall back into old sins or old ways. Uh, the catechism is reminding us here, like, we shouldn't be surprised by that because God is is sustaining us, perfecting us, and the, the road down which he leads us, um, it's, not, it's not always, often not, our way or the way we think it should go. And um, if we can embrace that with humility, trust, and perseverance, um, then we can make great progress by the grace of God. And then there's this great line about filial trust or trusting in the Lord as children trust in their, their parents. Um, filial trust is tested. It proves itself in tribulation. Some even stop praying because they think their petition is not heard. So we, we might stop praying because we think like God's not there. He's not hearing, answer, hearing and answering our prayers. The catechism says here, so if you feel like your prayers are not being heard, here two questions should be asked. Number one, why do we think our petition has not been heard? And number two, how is our prayer heard? How is it efficacious? So number one, why do you think the God of the universe who created you, sustains your life, and even came to suffer and die for you is not hearing and answering your prayers? And secondly, perhaps could it be your prayers being answered in a different way that's even better for you and for those involved? The catechism goes on with this headline, why do we complain of not being heard? 2735 says, in the first place, we ought to be astonished by this fact. When we praise God or give him thanks for his benefits in general, we are not particularly concerned whether or not our prayer is acceptable to him. So we pray and pray and pray and think like, I'm so good because I prayed. And the catechism says, we should be astonished by the fact that we don't pause for a moment and think, is my prayer even that good? <laughs> is what I'm asking or the way that I'm praising God uh, good? Or do I think like a cute little preschooler just because I did it, it should go up on the bulletin board. On the other hand, we demand to see the results of our petitions. What is the image of God that motivates our prayer? An instrument to be used or the father of our Lord Jesus Christ? So are we treating God in our prayer life as a vending machine? Or as I used to uh, chaperone Kairos retreats for high school students, and there was a talk, I forget what it was called, but basically like misunderstandings of who God is. And one of the misunderstandings is the Santa Claus God. Like if we're good, how apropos for this time of year, if we're good, um, if we're on the nice list, not the naughty list, well, then God should just give me everything I want. Like I should just be able to write him a letter. Um, and then when he, you know, 
makes his list and checks it twice and finds out that Rebecca has been nice and not naughty, well, then Rebecca should get everything she wrote to me and, and mailed to the North Pole. So what is the image of God that motivates our prayer? An instrument to be used, the Santa Claus God, or like the, the permissive parent, like, okay, you just go ahead. You know, if that's what you want, then that's what we'll do. Or the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite God who actually knows better and is able to do better. 2736 says, are we convinced that we do not know how to pray as we ought? Are we asking God for what is good for us? Because our Father knows what we need before we ask him. He awaits our petition because the dignity of his children lies in their freedom. So God could give us, he could give us everything we want, but what we want is not always good for us. Um, He could answer our prayers without us even praying. So he could just lay it all out before us, and there we go. But he invites us into prayer because he respects the dignity of his children, his children who are free. The dignity of his children lies in their freedom. So because we are free creatures, we can participate in this relationship with God and in our own lives rather than passively just let God do it all, make it all happen, etc. 2737 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If we ask with a divided heart, we are adulterers. God cannot answer us, for he desires our our well-being, our life. And then skipping down a little bit, if we enter into the desire of his spirit, we shall be heard. And then there's two quotes here, one from Avagrius Ponticus, the guy we referenced earlier, and then one from St. Augustine. Avagrius Ponticus says, Do not be troubled if you do not immediately receive from God what you ask him. For he desires to do something even greater for you while you cling to him in prayer. And then St. Augustine says, God wills that our desire should be exercised in prayer, that we may be able to receive what he is prepared to give. So oftentimes in praying for something or for someone, our hearts are expanded to receive all the goodness that awaits us at the end. Um, And if we had not prayed, we we wouldn't have the capacity to receive it or to receive it well. And God wants us to receive all of his gifts and treasures and blessings well. The Catechism goes on to ask, how is our prayer efficacious? 2738 says, the revelation of prayer in the economy of salvation teaches us that faith rests on God's action in history. Our filial trust is enkindled by his supreme act, the passion and resurrection of his son. Christian prayer is cooperation with his providence, his plan of love for men. So we know, we've seen... (laughs) We were born into a time in history after the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, God himself, um, the son of the Father. The Father gives us the son to suffer and die for us. We've seen that. We know it happened. How could we question then God's providence, his plan of love for men, as though like God did that? But now, you know what? I'm not going to hear and answer your prayers anymore. Or I'm going to like half-heartedly hear your prayers. So, oops. Yeah, you kind of got what you wanted. But, oh, I didn't mean for that to hurt you. Okay, sorry. Like as as though God fell asleep on the job. No, we saw what he did in history. Um, He continues to do that, to to be present, um, to lay down his life for us, and to, to love us with his whole infinite self. We'll then end with this section entitled Persevering in Love. Uh, 2742 says, pray constantly, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. For we have not, oh, this is the the, uh, quote I cited at the beginning of the episode, for we have not been commanded to work, to keep watch, and to fast constantly, but it has been laid down that we are to pray without ceasing. This tireless fervor can come only from love against our dullness 
and laziness, the battle of prayer is that of, again, these three things are listed, humble, trusting, and persevering love. This love opens our hearts to three enlightening and life-giving facts of faith about prayer. So then the catechism lays out three enlightening and life-giving facts about faith, excuse me, of faith about prayer. So number one, it is always possible to pray. And this paragraph cites St. John Chrysostom. It is possible to offer fervent prayer even while walking in public or strolling alone or seated in your shop while buying or selling or even while cooking. Okay, so we, we can always pray. So this, this command to pray unceasingly, we have the opportunity and the ability to do that. 2744 then lists the second, what was that? Enlightening and life-giving fact of faith about prayer. Prayer is a vital necessity. Proof from the contrary is no less convincing. If we do not allow the Spirit to lead us, we fall back into the slavery of sin. Uh, Nothing is equal to prayer. For what is impossible, it makes possible. What is difficult, easy. For it is impossible, utterly impossible, for the man who prays eagerly and invokes God ceaselessly ever to sin. And that comes again from St. John Chrysostom. And then there's a quote from St. Alphonsus Liguori, the uh, founder of the Redemptorist uh, order. He says, those who pray are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. <laughs> Talk about like boom baby or mic drop. Ha! <laughs> those who pray are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. God, give us the grace to persevere unceasingly in prayer. 2745 then lists the third I keep going back here. Third, enlightening and life-giving fact of faith about prayer. Prayer and Christian life are inseparable, for they concern the same love and the same renunciation proceeding from love. Again, prayer and Christian life are inseparable. We live as we pray, and we pray as we live. As human beings made of bodies and souls, bodies and spirits, the physical and the intangible, the ethereal, what am I looking for, spiritual, um, we are... We are composite wholes, and our humanity is affected by and acts in every dimension of life, so the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And if we're, we're not praying, that's going to affect our physical day-to-day lives. And if we're not living upright day-to-day lives, well, that's going to affect our prayer life. I might have mentioned this before. I'm a terrible faster. I'm very attached to food and drink to the point where whenever my sister and I travel together, she calls it the Becca food tour because like every two hours, I'm one of those people that gets hangry. So like every two hours we're looking for a restaurant or I'm like stuffing snacks in my pocket in case like the hunger emerges. So I I, I always want to fast. Um, but again, speaking of the, the spirit being willing and the flesh weak, I just have a really hard time and I use excuse after excuse. So Dan and I have been married eight and a half, coming up on nine years this summer, and we've had four children in the span of that. So I had some really great excuses along the way. I was like, oh, Lord, I'm pregnant. That would not be healthy for me nor the baby. Oh, I'm nursing. I need to eat extra so I can give this little baby nourishment. So... <laughs> So I don't know if we'll have more children, but currently I'm neither pregnant nor nursing. And I'm like, oh, shoot, like I don't really have an excuse right now. And for a little while, I use the excuse of like, I'm a full-time stay-at-home mom. Like I need to be present to these kids. I need to be strengthened and nourished. Um, I need, you know, that extra yummy coffee to like get me going in the morning. And by the grace of God, a a couple weeks ago, I thought I was really convicted. Like I, by the grace of God, I can fast and I really would like to fast. So God, give me the grace. 
And so I enlisted Dan, Dan as my teammate, thinking like, okay, if we're accountable, hold each other accountable, then then maybe we could we could really do this. So um, I asked Dan if we could just pick one day a week, fast together on bread and water, and he, God bless him, graciously obliged. So we're we're trying to do that together as a couple. And so I invite you if you'd like to like to join the uh, the fasting team here and eat uh, we do uh, so I, I still start with my cup of coffee in the morning but then we do a bagel uh, for a bagel for each meal um, and then water throughout the day to heed the call to pray and fast um, but also to become a little more disciplined in our day-to-day lives so hopefully that overflows into other dimensions of our our lives, our, our prayer life, our, our marriage, our family, etc. So come Lord Jesus, give us the grace to pray well as we live well and to live well as we pray well. Um, if you're calling us to more discipline in our prayer lives or in other dimensions of our lives, inspire us with, with a form of discipline, whether that's fasting, whether that's setting the alarm for a little earlier each day, whether that's getting out for a run or a walk a couple days a week. Lord, give us the grace to to do that so that our prayer life may be enriched and as a result, our, our day-to-day lives may be enriched. We thank you for loving us, for coming to us uh, in our our finite human little timeline and world and uh, please help us to be open each advent each christmas to remember uh, just how much you love us all that you have done for us and continue to do for us that you call us to prayer lives not because you need it but because it's it's good for us it's enlightening and life-giving so give us the grace lord to be humble trusting and to persevere in our prayer lives and in every dimension of our lives so that you may reign we love you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. We'll take a brief break and then return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 2725 through 2758. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 2725 through 2758 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 2, The Battle of Prayer. Prayer is both a gift of grace and a determined response on our part. It always presupposes effort. The great figures of prayer of the Old Covenant before Christ, as well as the Mother of God, the saints, and he himself, all teach us this. Prayer is a battle. Against whom? Against ourselves and against the wiles of the tempter who does all he can to turn man away from prayer away from union with God. We pray as we live because we live as we pray. If we do not want to act habitually according to the spirit of Christ, neither can we pray habitually in his name. The spiritual battle of the Christian's new life is inseparable from the battle of prayer. Objections to prayer. In the battle of prayer, we must face in ourselves and around us erroneous notions of prayer. Some people view prayer as a simple psychological activity. Others as an effort of concentration to reach a mental void. Still others reduce prayer to ritual words and postures. Many Christians unconsciously regard prayer as an occupation that is incompatible with all the other things they have to do. They don't have the time. Those who seek God by prayer are quickly discouraged because they do not know that prayer comes also from the Holy Spirit and not from themselves alone. 
We must also face the fact that certain attitudes deriving from the mentality of this present world can penetrate our lives if we are not vigilant. For example, some would have it that only that is true which can be verified by reason and science. Yet prayer is a mystery that overflows both our conscious and unconscious lives. Others overly prize production and profit. Thus prayer, being unproductive, is useless. Still others exalt sensuality and comfort as the criteria of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Whereas prayer, the love of beauty, is caught up in the glory of the living and true God. Finally, some see prayer as a flight from the world in reaction against activism. But in fact, Christian prayer is neither an escape from reality nor a divorce from life. Finally, our battle has to confront what we experience as failure in prayer. Discouragement during periods of dryness. Sadness that because we have great possessions, we have not given all to the Lord. Disappointment over not being heard according to our own will. Wounded pride stiffened by the indignity that is ours as sinners. Our resistance to the idea that prayer is a free and unmerited gift, and so forth. The conclusion is always the same. What good does it do to pray? To overcome these obstacles, we must battle to gain humility, trust, and perseverance. Humble Vigilance of Heart Facing Difficulties in Prayer The habitual difficulty in prayer is distraction. It can affect words and their meaning in vocal prayer. It can concern more profoundly him to whom we are praying in vocal prayer, liturgical or personal, meditation, and contemplative prayer. To set about hunting down distractions would be to fall into their trap, when all that is necessary is to turn back to our heart, for a distraction reveals to us what we are attached to. And this humble awareness before the Lord should awaken our preferential love for him and lead us resolutely to offer him our heart to be purified. Therein lies the battle, the choice of which master to serve. In positive terms, the battle against the possessive and dominating self requires vigilance, sobriety of heart. When Jesus insists on vigilance, he always relates it to himself, to his coming on the last day and every day, today. The bridegroom comes in the middle of the night. The light that must not be extinguished is that of faith. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Another difficulty, especially for those who sincerely want to pray, is dryness. Dryness belongs to contemplative prayer when the heart is separated from God, with no taste for thoughts, memories, and feelings, even spiritual ones. This is the moment of sheer faith clinging faithfully to Jesus in his agony and in his tomb. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. If dryness is due to the lack of roots, because the word has fallen on rocky soil, the battle requires conversion. Facing Temptations in Prayer The most common yet most hidden temptation is our lack of faith. It expresses itself less by declared incredulity than by our actual preferences. When we begin to pray, a thousand labors or cares thought to be urgent vie for priority. Once again, it is the moment of truth for the heart. What is its real love? Sometimes we turn to the Lord as a last resort, but do we really believe he is? Sometimes we enlist the Lord as an ally, but our heart remains presumptuous. In each case, our lack of faith reveals that we do not yet share in the disposition of a humble heart. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Another temptation to which presumption opens the gate is acedia. The spiritual writers understand by this a form of depression due to lax ascetical practice, decreasing vigilance, carelessness of heart. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The greater the height, the harder the fall. Painful as discouragement is, it is the reverse of presumption. The humble are not surprised by their distress. It leads them to trust more, to hold fast in constancy. Filial trust. 
Filial trust is tested, it proves itself in tribulation. The principal difficulty concerns the prayer of petition for oneself or for others in intercession. Some even stop praying because they think their petition is not heard. Here, two questions should be asked. Why do we think our petition has not been heard? And how is our prayer heard? How is it efficacious? Why do we complain of not being heard? In the first place, we ought to be astonished by this fact. When we praise God or give him thanks for his benefits in general, we are not particularly concerned whether or not our prayer is acceptable to him. On the other hand, we demand to see the results of our petitions. What is the image of God that motivates our prayer? An instrument to be used or the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are we convinced that we do not know how to pray as we ought? Are we asking God for what is good for us? Our Father knows what we need before we ask him. But he awaits our petition because the dignity of his children lies in their freedom. We must pray then with his spirit of freedom to be able truly to know what he wants. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If we ask with a divided heart, we are adulterers. God cannot answer us, for he desires our well-being, our life. Or do you suppose that it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? That our God is jealous for us is the sign of how true his love is. If we enter into the desire of his spirit, we shall be heard. Do not be troubled if you do not immediately receive from God what you ask him, for he desires to do something even greater for you while you cling to him in prayer. That's Evagrius Ponticus. God wills that our desire should be exercised in prayer, that we may be able to receive what he is prepared to give. That's St. Augustine. How is our prayer efficacious? The revelation of prayer in the economy of salvation teaches us that faith rests on God's action in history. Our filial trust is enkindled by his supreme act, the passion and resurrection of his son. Christian prayer is cooperation with his providence, his plan of love for men. For St. Paul, this trust is bold, founded on the prayer of the Spirit in us and on the faithful love of the Father who has given us his only Son. Transformation of the praying heart is the first response to our petition. The prayer of Jesus makes Christian prayer an efficacious petition. He is its model. He prays in us and with us. Since the heart of the Son seeks only what pleases the Father, how could the prayer of the children of adoption be centered on the gifts rather than the giver? Jesus also prays for us, in our place and on our behalf. All our petitions were gathered up once for all in his cry on the cross and in his resurrection, heard by the Father. This is why he never ceases to intercede for us with the Father. If our prayer is resolutely united with that of Jesus in trust and boldness as children, we obtain all that we ask in his name, even more than any particular thing, the Holy Spirit himself who contains all gifts. Persevering in love. Pray constantly, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. St. Paul adds, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. For we have not been commanded to work, to keep watch, and to fast constantly, but it has been laid down that we are to pray without ceasing. This tireless fervor can come only from love. Against our dullness and laziness, the battle of prayer is that of humble, trusting, and persevering love. This love opens our hearts to three enlightening and life-giving facts of faith about prayer. First, it is always possible to pray. The time of the Christian is that of the risen Christ who is with us always, no matter what tempests may arise. Our time is in the hands of God. 
It is possible to offer fervent prayer even while walking in public or strolling alone or seated in your shop, while buying or selling, or even while cooking. That's St. John Chrysostom. Number two, prayer is a vital necessity. Proof from the contrary is no less convincing. If we do not allow the Spirit to lead us, we fall back into the slavery of sin. How can the Holy Spirit be our life if our heart is far from him? Nothing is equal to prayer. For what is impossible, it makes possible. What is difficult, easy. For it is impossible, utterly impossible, for the man who prays eagerly and invokes God ceaselessly ever to sin. That's St. John Chrysostom again. Those who pray are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. That's St. Alphonsus Liguori. Prayer and Christian life, so this is the third point, prayer and Christian life are inseparable, for they concern the same love and the same renunciation, proceeding from love, the same filial and loving conformity with the Father's plan of love, the same transforming union in the Holy Spirit who conforms us more and more to Christ Jesus, the same love for all men, the same with which Jesus has loved us. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This I command you, to love one another. He prays without ceasing, who unites prayers to works and good works to prayer. Only in this way can we consider as realizable the principle of praying without ceasing. That's from Origen. Article 3, The Prayer of the Hour of Jesus. When his hour came, Jesus prayed to the Father. His prayer, the longest transmitted by the gospel, embraces the whole economy of creation and salvation, as well as his death and resurrection. The prayer of the hour of Jesus always remains his own, just as his Passover once for all remains ever present in the liturgy of his church. Christian tradition rightly calls this prayer the priestly prayer of Jesus. It is the prayer of our high priest inseparable from his sacrifice, from his passing over or Passover to the Father to whom he is wholly consecrated. In this paschal and sacrificial prayer, everything is recapitulated in Christ, God and the world, the word and the flesh, eternal life and time, the love that hands itself over and the sin that betrays it, the disciples present and those who will believe in him by their word, humiliation and glory. It is the prayer of unity. Jesus fulfilled the work of the Father completely. His prayer, like his sacrifice, extends until the end of time. The prayer of this hour fills the end times and carries them toward their consummation. Jesus, the Son to whom the Father has given all things, has given himself wholly back to the Father, yet expresses himself with a sovereign freedom by virtue of the power the Father has given him over all flesh. The Son, who made himself servant, is Lord, the Panto Crater. Our high priest who prays for us is also the one who prays in us and the God who hears our prayer. By entering into the holy name of the Lord Jesus, we can accept from within the prayer he teaches us, our Father. His priestly prayer fulfills from within the great petitions of the Lord's Prayer, concern for the Father's name, passionate zeal for his kingdom or glory, the accomplishment of the will of the Father, of his plan of salvation and deliverance from evil. Finally, in this prayer, Jesus reveals and gives to us the knowledge, inseparably one, of the Father and of the Son, which is the very mystery of the life of prayer. In brief, Prayer presupposes an effort, a fight against ourselves and the wiles of the tempter. The battle of prayer is inseparable from the necessary spiritual battle to act habitually according to the Spirit of Christ. We pray as we live because we live as we pray. In the battle of prayer, we must confront erroneous conceptions of prayer, various currents of thought, and our own experience of failure. We must respond with humility, trust, and perseverance to these temptations which cast doubt on the usefulness or even the possibility of prayer. 
The principal difficulties in the practice of prayer are distraction and dryness. The remedy lies in faith, conversion, and vigilance of heart. Two frequent temptations threaten prayer, lack of faith and ascidia, a form of depression stemming from lax ascetical practice that leads to discouragement. Filial trust is put to the test when we feel that our prayer is not always heard. The gospel invites us to ask ourselves about the conformity of our prayer to the desire of the Spirit. Pray constantly. It is always possible to pray. It is even a vital necessity. Prayer and Christian life are inseparable. The prayer of the hour of Jesus, rightly called the priestly prayer, sums up the whole economy of creation and salvation. It fulfills the great petitions of the Our Father. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.